Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Watching the past week post-election day has been like watching a car wreck. We know we shouldn't look, but we can't help but be curious. The key difference here is that the wreck affects us. The clown car of transition planning gives us some idea of how we will all be impacted over the next four years. The president said earlier this week that this is simply one of the zigzags of history, that often things have gotten worse before they get better. Certainly from a historical perspective, that's true. But what does it mean for America and the world in the 21st century? Every day we hear political pundits talking about what happened and why. And some of it's good and insightful. But most of it comes from the same people that didn't see it all coming. My guest today, Sarah Kenzior, lives among it in the heartland of America. She's written extensively on subjects of race and class and America's role in the world. She recently published a book of her essays entitled The View from Flyover Country, and she writes a regular column for the Globe and Mail. It is my pleasure to welcome Sarah Kenzior to Radio Who, What, Why. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. As you look out at, at what drove us to what we've been dealing with since Election Day, one of the things I know you've written about and talked about is the fact that, that the predicate for this has been with us for a long time. This isn't something that just happened in the past year or the past year and a half during the campaign, that events that brought us to where we are today have been brewing for a long time. Talk about that. Um, yes, that's true in multiple respects. Um, in terms of Trump and his popular support, you know, I do live out in St. Louis, um, in Missouri, and the recession never ended here. Um, you know, people are extremely frustrated um, with their economic situation. It's been very difficult for people to hold on to middle-class jobs. And so that kind of popular economic discontent um, that both Trump and, and Sanders and eventually Clinton heavily emphasized um, is important. It's not the only thing. Um, you know, obviously, Trump has run a very racist and bigoted campaign, um, you know, a sort of white nationalist campaign reminiscent of dictators. I should note that, um, you know, I do live in, in Missouri, so I have this perspective, um, but I also have a PhD uh, in anthropology where I studied uh, dictatorships, particularly post-Soviet dictatorships um, like Uzbekistan. So I'm an expert in that field as well. Um, and many of the things that Trump did throughout his campaign reminded me very much um, of the dictators that I've studied in terms of, you know, his demagoguery, uh, his use of spectacle, his manipulation of the media, and his manipulation of the, of the masses, um, who I think have, uh, you know, those who voted for him, I think have signed on for something um, that they don't really want. I don't think he's going to fulfill their promises to um his promises to them in order to improve their economic livelihood or keep them safer. I, in fact, think the opposite is going to happen. Um, and that's true because, you know, he has frankly stated so, um, including long before the election. For example, in February 2014, Trump went on Fox News to talk about Russia, um, which we should return to this because it's very interesting that a reality TV show host would be on TV talking about Russian foreign policy in 2014. Um, but another thing he said during then, the interview was that um, in order for America to go back to where it was, to, to go back to being great, we need total economic collapse and we need riots. And he explicitly called for this. His um, chief advisor and uh, advisor throughout his campaign, Steve Bannon, who is an extreme uh, white supremacist who you know, runs Breitbart Media, which is a conspiratorial 
right-wing site, has also said similar things. Um, you know, he described himself as a Leninist who wants to destroy the state. Uh, um, but, you know, I wouldn't really describe him as a Leninist as much as an accelerationist, which is also what I would describe Trump. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, there's so many factors going into this. Uh, you know, it's a little bit head spinning, but I've been tracking it um, all year. I became very worried throughout the year uh, that Trump would indeed win. I know the polls said he, he wouldn't, but I noticed both the genuine popular support um, that I saw among people here in the center of the country, uh, but also a lot of um, manipulative tactics that remind me very much of how dictators take power. Uh, so I think it's important to, to take a full look at everything that's happened and, and really investigate, uh, because what we will deal with in the future uh, is, is very dire, um, and I think we should try our best to stop it. Talk a little bit about what you hear from people in, in your part of the country, in the center of the country, with regard to expectations, what they think is going to happen, to the extent that whether they voted for Trump simply because they wanted to shake things up or because they really did have expectations that somehow it was going to make their lives better? Uh, well, I went to a lot of Trump rallies um, and a lot of Tea Party Trump meetings uh, in Missouri uh, and also in Illinois. Uh, throughout the year, um, I didn't go as a journalist. I went, you know, as a member of the crowd, um, and people would talk to me pretty openly because they thought I was a, a fellow Trump supporter. And so, you know, one thing that needs to be clear is that this is not a monolithic group of people. Um, there are some people who really are, you know, very bigoted, um, who are anti-immigrant, who, um, you know, are, are racist. You know, all of that is there. There are others that are just very desperate. Um, they feel like their their needs have not been addressed um, by the Democratic Party, by Obama, um, and, often, and often by the GOP as well. I think that this is this is completely accurate. I mean, since 2008, it's been a struggle to, to live out here and to make ends meet. And so I think that, you know, we're at a point where people feel, you know, so desperate and so enraged that they're willing to listen to anybody um, who is, you know, very actively uh, stating that he's concerned for their welfare, that he's going to return their lives back to when it was good. Um, you know, and that especially they would they would have steady jobs and work again and a feeling of um, safety and inclusion in American life. And so, you know, that feeling is very understandable. Um, Donald Trump is not going to do that. He doesn't actually understand or care about people in this part of the country. He has had his whole life, you know, as a billionaire of, of major influence and of political influence to care about what happens to people out here. And all he's done is shake people down. He's done that all over the place like everywhere from Atlantic City to Gary, Indiana, uh, you know, and he's about to shake down the entire country uh, in a very kleptocratic way, I think, by privatizing resources, um, by, you know, not bringing jobs, by making people feel more desperate. And that kind of desperation um, can lead to ethnic violence and can lead to hate crimes, especially when it's being, you know, you're being prompted towards those hate crimes explicitly by the administration. The, you know, in the hiring of Steve Bannon and others, he's saying, that this is sanctioned behavior now, that it's okay for the president to be backed by the Ku Klux Klan, that you can get away uh, with treating non-white people um, in a completely derogatory, cruel, and often barbaric fashion. You know, his promises um, should be, we should expect him to carry them out. A lot of people were doubtful that he would do things like make a registration list of Muslims or do mass deportation because, you know, these are the kind of tactics that happen in dictatorships. Um, these are the kind of things that don't happen in the United States. 
um, you know, I mean, we have had atrocities in the United States, but, you know, we, we usually prefer to not talk about them or brag about them so openly. He's openly saying he's going to do this. He said it throughout the entire campaign, and he's now making these plans. And so we're in for, you know, a very ugly situation where I think we're going to be, you know, economically bottomed out. Um, you know, I think everyone is going to suffer, whether you voted for Trump or you didn't. He might try to placate people, um, you know, in the beginning by, by throwing them some jobs, maybe through infrastructure projects. But it seems clear from his team that the goal, um, you know, as you've seen in other countries all around the world, is to try to make as much money for himself and his friends as he can by using, you know, and abusing executive powers um, to strip down national resources and, you know, carry out the kind of acts of corruption that he has, many of which we don't know about because he won't return his, he won't release his tax returns. Uh, so we should be prepared for economic volatility in a very extreme way. We should also be prepared um, for sanctioned violence and for policies that, that frankly disregard the Constitution and the rights of American citizens. When many of these promises aren't kept, when the lives of people in that part of the country don't improve, are we going to see scapegoating that goes on, in your view? Yes, absolutely. Um, and that's something I'm, I'm very concerned about. You know, I think right now, people who voted for Trump um, are obviously happy he won. You know, some are just, just regular people who are glad their candidate, um, you know, managed to be or seemed to have been Hillary Clinton. Um, but others, you know, we've seen uh, an enormous spike in hate crimes. You know, I, I think one of the largest in the history of the country since they started tracking this in the week after the election, you know, everything from swastikas being painted places to make America white again, um, to people being beaten and bullied, to children being taunted in classrooms, to threats towards Muslims and Jews. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very disconcerting. There doesn't seem to be uh, much reaction in our government to stop it. Leaders are not uh, speaking out very strongly about it, with a few exceptions. And I think it's very interesting that one of those exceptions is Harry Reid, who's leaving uh, the government. He spoke out in the strongest way. And so you kind of have to wonder, you know, why um, isn't Obama and, you know, why aren't Obama and other leaders being more forceful when there's a, a real stated threat uh, from the president-elect and his team to average American citizens and that this threat is being carried out in a populist way and will eventually be carried out, um, you know, with uh, the law itself, you know, with executive power itself. I think as he does not fulfill his promises um, and jobs, you know, do not return here, and if resources are denied and if people's suffering increases, he will encourage them, as he has throughout his campaign, to look for scapegoats. Um, and those scapegoats will be, you know, Muslims, Mexicans, uh, and anyone else uh, who he, he wants to blame this problem on. The media has really played this down. They played this down throughout the entire campaign, including major incidents, um, such as about two weeks before the election, a group of Trump fans were arrested for, um, by the FBI for building a weapon of mass destruction to blow up an apartment building that housed Somalis um, in Kansas. And so that, to me, is a, is a pretty major story. Like, imagine if that was the other way around and a bunch of, you know, Somalis had plotted to, to blow up a, a building of white camp, Muslim Somalis had plotted to 
to blow up a building of white Kansans. It would be everywhere. Uh, but you probably, I don't even know if you've heard about it. I don't know if your listeners have heard about it, but you can look it up. The Kansas City Star uh, covered it pretty extensively. So there's something going on um, in that a lot of this seems to be sanctioned by the media, sanctioned by the government. And it's extremely reminiscent of dictators, both past and present. Uh, and I think it's an urgent crisis. I think it's something that uh, the government and, and people, people who believe in American values, um, that, you know, we should be free, that we should be safe, that we should, you know, honor each other as citizens and respect each other's rights as citizens. Anyone who cares about that um, should be very concerned right now and be contacting their representatives um, and speaking out and trying to amass as much, um, you know, mobilization against this kind of sanctioned brutality as possible. A lot has been written about the degree to which people on both coasts really don't understand what life is like in flyover country. You've talked a little bit about that. Is there any sense among the people in that part of the country, in the middle of the country, of, of what's transpired, of what's changing the way the world has changed with respect to cities and urban America? Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I have to say straight out is that you know, we're not a monolith out here either. Like, you know, St. Louis is different than a small town in Missouri. Missouri is different than Nebraska. You know, there's sometimes this, this coastal tendency to kind of, treat, you know, treat us as flyover country, to treat us as indistinct. Um, what we do have in common, though, as a region is that, you know, yes, um, you know, our concerns are ignored. Um, they have been for a long time. You know, I live in a Rust Belt Midwestern city that was hit very hard by the recession, and I've been, you know, writing about that and documenting it for a long time, and I, I don't think that um, coasts understand. You know, we lost a lot of businesses here after the recession, but one of the businesses we lost was media. There is an incredible downsizing and cutting of our local newspapers, um, especially in small towns, but even in big cities like, like St. Louis, where our paper is barely hanging on. Um, and that has, you know, lessened the amount of information that comes out and skewed the national narrative. Um, people tend to rely much more on, like, cable news outlets, on national news outlets. And right now, uh, one out of every four journalists is currently living in three expensive coastal cities. And when that happens, you get a very skewed and distorted view of what the average American is experiencing. And I think that this, you know, comes across to people as apathy. They get very frustrated. They feel like their very legitimate concerns are not heard. And that provides an opening uh, for a dangerous demagogue like Donald Trump to come in and pretend to be the one who cares. But it's a great irony because he is, in fact, a, a New York billionaire elite. Um, he's stocking his cabinets with other billionaire elites. Uh, he is not concerned with what's going to happen to us out here. Um, and we're already suffering out here. And I, I think our suffering is going to get worse. And uh, that's a great shame. So, you know, I call on elected officials out where I live uh, to take the threat of Donald Trump and his administration very seriously, to remember that they were elected to serve the people and that, um, you know, they haven't been, been doing that well for the last eight years, but I think a lot of people will be willing to cut them some slack if uh, they could intervene now and, in, in, you know, derail what is an extremely dangerous situation. To what extent is there an understanding of the way in which the world has changed as a result of technology and globalization, and, and that in many ways, the genie can't be put back in the bottle. There's lots of talk, of course, about manufacturing and jobs lost. In terms of manufacturing output, 
really, it, it's higher than it has been in a long time. The difference is it takes one-third of the amount of jobs to do that manufacturing today. To what extent is there an understanding of these fundamental shifts? Um, I mean, I can't speak for other people. You know, I can just speak for myself and how much I observe that being covered and, and discussed by the news and by public officials. And I don't think it's discussed as much as it should be. Um, you know, I, I do fear uh, automation. Um, you know, that is how a lot of workers lost their jobs. You know, Trump emphasized outsourcing, but a lot of what's changed mm-hmm. the economy over the last eight years has been, you know, internet shopping, um, you know, the closure of local stores and malls and people that used to work there now being unemployed. I think we're going to see the rise of a lot of automated technology that will replace workers. Uh, some of Trump's um, key allies are Silicon Valley people uh, who are, have kind of a libertarian philosophy and, you know, don't particularly care about workers. Um, they're just interested in the technological aspect and it doesn't really have a, you know, they don't seem to have a moral obligation to think about who this is going to hurt and what's going to replace it. Um, you know, and I, I think that, you know, this is dangerous. I think there are other policies that would make a lot more sense, um, you know, including raising the minimum wage and also creating jobs, uh, you know, in this new economy for, for blue collar workers and you know, eliminating the kind of credentialism um, that new jobs often require. You know, now jobs that you didn't need a college degree for a few decades ago, you suddenly need a college degree and a college degree is suddenly incredibly expensive. And so that leaves a lot of people locked out of the job market. Uh, I don't see Trump, um, you know, really understanding this. I, I don't think a lot of people understand this. But what everybody does understand is the desperation that this inspires. And whether that desperation can be put to good use, as in, you know, nullifying it and giving people jobs, giving people a good life, giving people the opportunities that they've deserved and, you know, eliminating their hardship, that would be great. But I think Trump sees this as an, ex- as an opportunity to exploit people's pain and hardship. And if that hardship increases, you know, we've seen throughout history the way people turn cruel when they're suffering, um, the way people who thought that they would never, ever do something to another human being uh, can be led to do that if their economic situation is dire, if they feel like they can get away with it by law, and if they feel like they're part of a, a mass sort of mob movement. You know, human beings are very susceptible to this. It's not a case of are you good or evil, um, but is the action you're taking good or evil? Are you willing to abide evil? Are you willing to just stand by while other people are going to get hurt? And so, you know, I'll just say right now that if you are going to stand by and watch Trump um, do the things that he's planning to Mexicans and Muslims and think that it's not eventually going to happen to you, you know, because you're white or because you're someone who voted for him or supported him, it will happen to you because the only person that he cares about is himself and his very rich elite backers. Um, and they are going to strip down this country and you're going to, to lose even more than you have. So, you know, I I have no animosity towards the Trump voters. Um, You know, I obviously don't condone the the bigotry and the racism that many have expressed. But, yeah, they're my neighbors. Um, You know, they're my fellow people in Missouri. And uh, I I see where a lot of them are coming from. And so, you know, I hope that everybody heeds this warning um, because things are going to get bad. And as Americans, uh, we need to look out for each other and we need to look out for our country. When we look for historical precedent for this kind of dislocation and this kind of reaction 
Talk about what you see. Yes. Um, you know, it's interesting if you study a carrying states and a regime knows that it's going to have, you know, fairly absolute power over the people, they often stop being subtle about it. Um, they often start leaving out, you know, what we call tells so that people can understand what's going on. People who are savvy um, to these regimes can understand what's going on because they recognize these historical parallels. So when Trump is saying America first, you know, which was a, a fashion slogan, when his advisors are talking about making the trains run on time, um, which is associated with Hitler, when they're talking about draining, draining the swamp, uh, which is a phrase that came from Mussolini, when Trump is tweeting Mussolini, when he's tweeting pictures um, of, you know, Jewish stars next to piles of money, and then you combine that with his actual administration, which includes people who have, you know, supported neo-Nazis, even right-wing, extreme right-wing people like Glenn Beck have come out and said that Steve Bannon is a neo-Nazi. I, I think, quite honestly, and I don't mean to frighten people, um, that we need to prepare for the worst. When you start hearing about them making a registry of Muslims, you know, that, yes, that should make you remember that there was a registry of Jews. And there's this attitude uh, that America is exceptional, that it can't happen here. Um, it can happen anywhere. All the countries that thought that this could never, ever happen, uh, that people would be good, that their government would never betray them like this, they found out the hard way um, that it can. And so I think it, it's really important that we confront this very frightening reality. Um, and it's not a fantasy, it's a reality now. He's the president-elect, and soon he will have the power to carry out this. And we need to stop it. We need to stand up for each other. It's not a matter of partisanship at this point. It's not a matter of, you know, getting Hillary into office or something, but just stopping cruelty, stopping sanctioned, violent, anti-constitutional acts that greatly hurt the American public. Because once this gets going, if you look at the history of, of fascist or authoritarian states, it moves extremely quickly. It seems to be that everything's normal and then little things creep in. And then once they have power, they will abuse it. And so we also need to look at the institutions that are supposed to keep this in check. Um, you know, an institution like the FBI, which seems to have been compromised. You know, we have Comey releasing his statement uh, before the election, you know, that, that um, there was an investigation into Clinton and then, you know, afterwards admitting that this investigation did not have to do with Clinton and was leading nowhere. We have to kind of wonder why he did that. We have to wonder why um, the FBI went rogue on Twitter and suddenly uh, a few days before the election started releasing all sorts of files about the Clinton and then also releasing a very flattering file of uh, Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father, calling him a philanthropist. Um, Donald Trump's father was sued for racial discrimination and also participated in uh, a Ku Klux Klan action. You know, that's the sort of thing that, that the FBI was actually investigating for him or his, um, his racism. That's not the way the FBI presented him. There seems to be, you know, warring factions within some of our institutions. Uh, again, you know, if you've I studied authoritarian states for a long time, you can look for tells. The CIA uh, inexplicably tweeted out um, a picture of, uh, you know, I think it was Hitler's China, followed up um, by a, a little historical anecdote about Hitler's collaboration with Russians. Uh, I don't know how to really interpret this. Um, the CIA, of course, is, is a 
is a place where they do this sort of subtle stuff for a living. You know, they're trained to look for it in other states when they're analyzing the social media and data um, of other countries. They, they look for signs like this, like what are people actually saying? And so I feel like, the, you know, in little small things like that, you can see our institutions releasing some sort of sign. And it's important to try to distinguish whether that sign is an SOS, like a kind of warning, or whether it's saying, you know, we will be complicit in these actions. Because our best bet to stop these horrendous policies from being carried out is for them to be blocked, you know, by organizations that have, you know, in the past served the country. For example, the FBI had, had, was the one who, you know, uh, took down that group of men in Kansas, those three Trump fans who were planning to blow up that um, apartment of Somalis. If they're not going to stop those actions, uh, we're in deep trouble. So there really needs to be a congressional investigation into what exactly is going on, um, into whether the election has been compromised by Russia, as Lindsey Graham has stated, as um, John McCain has stated, as many others have stated, particularly given uh, Trump's ties to Russia, uh, the role of Paul Manafort, who has you know, helped elevate dictators all over the world, but especially in Ukraine in collaboration with Putin. Um, you know, this all sounds like a spy novel. I, I think it's kind of hard for people to swallow that this could really be happening. Um, but I, I would never say this unless I, I was very sincere. You know, and as I said before, I've been studying this for a long time. So I think it's really something that our government should get on investigating. And I would urge citizens to call their representatives. It doesn't matter if you live in a blue state or a red state. Um, just call because, you know, you want an investigation into you know, potential corruption of Trump, his administration, um, and this election, and especially foreign interference and, you know, what exactly is happening with, with our American officials. Because I think if there's, there's public pressure, then maybe uh, people will speak more freely in response. And finally, Sarah, is there anything that gives you reason for hope, anything that gives you cause for optimism, given where we are today? I'm not hopeful at all about what the administration will do. Um, I, I know it's going to do terrible things. Uh, what gives me hope, um, you know, and I, I'd like to say that we should be pragmatic before we're hopeful. We should be mobilized and organized uh, before we're hopeful. But, of course, you have to have hope uh, in your heart. And I studied a lot of terrible regimes, um, you know, in history and in the present day. And I've seen that when people band together uh, and they do what's right and they stand up for their fellow Americans um, and they are willing to confront the darkness ahead and work very, very hard, um, that they've managed to save their country. They've managed to save their countrymen and they've managed to work and rebuild and make it a better place. Um, you know, America has been in a bad place for a long time. We've had two terrible wars. We've had a shattered economy. You know, this, the situation that allowed this um, to happen, that allowed Trump to come to power, was not just, uh, you know, he, he moseyed on in. Like, we were vulnerable to this. So we have a lot of things that we need to fix, but we will be unable to fix them uh, under this present administration. People keep saying, wait until 2018, wait until 2020. I don't think we have that much time uh, to try to mitigate the damage that he's going to do because it will be extreme and it will move very quickly. Um, so really the time is now, you know, the time to call your representative, 
to mobilize with your community, to look out for your neighbor, um, and to think, you know, what kind of person are you? You know, what kind of country are we? You know, what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be a good citizen? What does it mean to be a patriot? You know, and to me, that means, you know, you stand up for each other. You work for each other. Uh, and if your government is, is doing something that you find morally objectionable, that seems unconstitutional, if your government is not being transparent, if it's, you know, putting open white supremacists as the chief strategist, you should say, yes, you know, this is not normal. This is not American values. Um, and, and then go from there and, you know, work with your own communities locally and also try to contact people nationally uh, to share your concerns uh, if you are concerned about this. And I really think you all should be. Uh, it's not partisan. You know, if you're a Republican listening to this, uh, you're just as susceptible um, to these things as a Democrat. There's really nobody who's immune except for the, the team of wealthy elites and, and backers um, that are with Trump. You know, and I'd add there that his appointment of his family members uh, into, you know, getting clearances and being part of the administration is something you see all over the world in dictatorships. It's just such a flagrant sign that the person in power um, is not serving the country, but is serving himself and his family and is abusing executive power in order to accumulate more wealth. And we don't know Trump's financial situation because he never released those tax returns, which was also unprecedented. So these are all concrete things. Um, to watch out for. You know, I've been posting about them a lot on my Twitter account, you know, which is Sarah Kenzier um, on Twitter. So you can go and find a wealth of information um, if any of this is new to you, which it might be because the media really isn't reporting on it as extensively as I hope they did. And I, I think it's very important that citizens become informed. Sarah Kenzior, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.